Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, December the 8th, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and I am coming to you from the distant future. I have returned to bring you important information about the news this week in Enterprise IT. And joining me is my partner in crime and an even more distant future time traveler, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the past. Thank you very much. Great Scott! I think there's something wrong with the gravity here in this time. Indeed, and uh, we will be referring to the Gray Sports Almanac for any future sports scores that you might need. But that's going to be after we cover some of the news that's been going on this week. Uh, it's been kind of exciting. We were wondering maybe is thing going to slow down a little bit after AWS reInvent, and no, no, it didn't. As a matter of fact, it wasn't a very happy day if you were an Amazon customer, and I'm not talking about the holiday shipping woes. Um, that's because there was a widespread outage on Tuesday in US East 1, or as we like to refer to it, the only AWS instance that ever seems to be used. Now, the outage was first noticed in the management console for AWS. However, the management console runs on top of EC2, so anything that was running on top of EC2 seems to have been affected as well. The outage was kind of one of those rolling type things where they thought they had it fixed for a little bit, but there were still some outages going on and it affected a lot of things all throughout the day. Now, Stephen, should we be any worried about the growing number of widespread outages in the cloud, or is this just kind of par for the centralized course? Uh, it's pretty much par for the course, I would say, Tom. Uh, so for what it's worth, yeah, it seems like uh, US East 1 is the one that just always suffers uh, from everything. It's sort of the original, the oldest uh, AWS region, and frankly, it seems to be the home of most <laughs> applications. Uh, I will say, as of when we're recording this, which is uh, Tuesday afternoon, uh, the uh, Alexa is still down. Uh, it's still just sitting there flashing. Uh, some people have been reporting with uh, issues with websites, uh, with a lot of uh, applications and so on. Uh, but traveling forward into the future, as we will here on National Time Traveler Day, um, I think that it's probably still going to be having issues uh, on Wednesday as well. But uh, I think the biggest, the biggest point that I'd like to make here is that every time there's an outage, and it seems like we're reporting on them fairly frequently here, uh, everyone says exactly the same thing, which is make high availability applications that can survive the outage of an AWS region. And every time, it seems like not everything can. And I guess that's kind of too much to expect. I do suspect that a lot of companies have gone ahead and made high availability apps that can survive a region outage. but. I guess not enough of them. So um, there we go. Um, you know, that's how it goes, right? We've still got an outage. Tom, uh, Aryaka announced this week that they've got a new offering aimed at small and medium enterprises along with some exciting security announcements. Uh, the Smart Connect Managed SD-WAN service comes in an SMB and an enterprise offering to help customers manage their migration to a more modern WAN. The uh, Prime Security offering adds SASE cloud security on top of connectivity to keep users safe and secure wherever they're working. Tom, uh, since you know what all these words mean and you know who Ariaka is, uh, what do you think about this new offering? So I had the chance to sit down and talk to Sashi Kiran and Dave Ginsberg at Ariaka, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, hear a little bit more about what they're doing. And I think it's a very important distinction because 
When you look at the market for these kinds of solutions, um, you would maybe think, based on the, the companies that you've talked to in the past, that everyone operates a 25,000 node network that has infrastructure based all over the globe, and that's why you need these solutions. And probably 80% of the people listening to the rundown have never seen a network of that size and, and would probably fall over at the concept of having to manage 50 sites. So small and medium enterprises are very much the kind of target customer that a company like Ariaka is looking at because their solution is managed. So that means that once you've bought into it, they ship you customer premises equipment, you install it, and you're on their network and you don't have anything to worry about. So this was kind of a distinction away from what they had been doing before, which was kind of replicating some of that traditional SD-WAN architecture. And they're kind of winnowing it down to what customers really need. So for example, one of the things that's different between their SMB line versus their pro enterprise line is that they took out layer two connectivity because let's be honest, most people who are operating smaller networks don't need that. But more importantly, they're also decoupling the SASE security elements from the offering and allowing it to be packaged and added to other existing um, platforms, if you will. So you don't just have to buy everything. You can buy the cart separately from the horse and arrange them however you'd like. And I really like this idea of keeping security important, but also helping people understand that you really do need to have it as you try to distribute this technology to your teleworkers. Because the more and more we're gonna start doing this remote work from home type thing, the more you're gonna to need to be able to stay on top of the management of these devices because it will get out of hand really quickly. Um, so I'm excited to see this big announcement from Ariaka and I'm kind of curious to see how many people kind of take up on it. All right, Stephen, um, Intel is widening their partnerships to help bring some new IPUs to the market. Um, the Oak Springs Canyon model is the one that has been recently announced. It's on the horizon. And Intel is working with some suppliers, including Inspur, uh, network vendor uh, Regi Networks, and Silicom as well. Now, the partnership is going to enable them to bring this IPU platform to the market more quickly, but one of the other things that they're trying to do is they're trying to avoid single sourcing parts from one particular vendor because they're really trying to avoid those supply chain issues that we've been hearing so much about recently. And this week they, is part of a larger IPU and FPGA kind of event where they're announcing a lot of these things. So I'm sure that this is probably just the tip of the iceberg, um, that there'll be some more stuff coming out. But Stephen, we've talked a lot about DPUs and IPUs and FPGAs on this uh, event and on this show. Is this Intel trying to move away from their chip dominance or are they really looking to kind of diversify their portfolio into something that maybe will give them some legs in the future? Yeah, the interesting thing about Oak Springs Canyon is that it's exactly the opposite of what you might think moving away from their chip dominance. So just to uh, reiterate, um, Intel has a variety of different uh, what they call IPUs, what somebody else might call DPU offerings. Uh, some of them use ASICs, um, some of them use FPA, FPGAs. The Oak Springs Canyon is a really interesting one because it's a combination of FPGA and Xeon D. So this is a, a card that actually you know, fits in your, C, in your PCIe slot and uh, has networking ports on it and so on, but actually has an Intel Xeon chip on the card along with an FPGA on the card and of course all the requisite networking hardware. So as I said, this is the exact opposite of Intel moving away from their uh, dominant platform. In fact, this is Intel moving very strongly toward leveraging their dominance in x86 in the, in the IPU market. 
when these were announced, a lot of us were sort of scratching our heads and saying, wait, 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 wait. So it's an add-in card for Xeon servers that has a Xeon of its own on the card. What's up with that? And the answer is, well, those Xeon chips are really, really strong performers. And so if you're talking about ASICs or you're talking about uh, you know, ARM chips or whatever, the Xeon D is a really, really nice uh, chip. For what it's worth, this is the same chip that's used in a lot of um, storage systems out there and a lot of network devices as well. If they've got an Intel CPU, many of them are using a Xeon D. Uh, basically, this is a good work, workhorse chip. It's not super high-powered. It's not super high-performance. It's not even the latest model, but it is a decent-performing chip. It's going to be on the card, and it lets them do a lot, of, uh, a lot more work offload than you might think. The other thing is that since it's an x86 chip, this is a chip that maybe is easier to program or easier to integrate with whatever else you're doing than an ARM chip or even an FPGA. But of course, there's an FPGA there too, so Intel can basically reprogram this uh, card to do almost anything. As far as these specific partners, now I don't know anything about what the Intel's doing in the future. Not even a time traveler can tell you that. But I will tell you that uh, this is probably not the end of the story in terms of who's going to be doing these Oak Spring Canyon uh, IPUs. I think we're going to see a lot more familiar names coming soon. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that Inspur isn't exactly, it may not be a household name, but it's one of the largest uh, system integrators and system manufacturers in the world. So uh, it's not a tiny nobody company either. Tom, uh, the, if the idea of branch offices feels like it was ages ago, you're not uh, alone. Aruba, a Hewlett-Packard Enterprise company, uh, is looking to shrink the branch office down to microscopic size. They announced this week a new way to provide secure remote connectivity to anyone running Aruba access points. The micro-branch software allows you to centralize deployment and management of remote networks while also providing a way for remote users to send traffic uh, to the local network where it's applicable. The exciting part about this is that the software can work on any existing access points running AOS 10. Tom, uh, what's your take on this in this new world of remote workers? So I got a chance to talk to Aruba about this one as well. And one of the things that kind of has given me pause about this idea of a distributed remote workforce is what's my hardware requirement going to look like? Because even when SD-WAN first started coming out and a lot of these companies really wanted to sell me on the idea of having remote branches everywhere, I was still thinking, well, you're going to have to ship them a box and they're going to have to configure that box and it's going to be, you know, a traditional like one RU sized thing. I don't have any RU space in my house. I don't have a rack. I have stuff on my walls that my kids use to play Fortnite and other things on their game devices. And then, you know, we stream TV and stuff like that. So I'm not going to rip and replace a whole bunch of infrastructure in my house. But with Aruba, what they're saying is we already have control of these remote edge access points through Aruba Central. And we can deploy software to them wherever they go. So why couldn't we just install a software image on the access point and say, guess what? Now you have secure cloud connectivity. And if that sounds to you an awful lot like, why don't you just have your laptop uh, initiate a VPN connection back to headquarters and dial in that way? Yeah, that, that's kind of what this is. But it's seamless on your side. Because let's be fair, I'm an enterprise IT nerd and a lot of the people who watch this show are. So you could probably configure a VPN concentrator in your sleep. Now, I want you to go try to teach your CEO to do that. Go ahead. I'll wait. I've got time, but not that much time. 
What's going to end, uh, ultimately end up happening is, is that you're going to have this setup where you ship this Aruba Remote Edge Access Point to your you know, executive level people or your folks that are remote, and you're going to be like, listen, plug it in, make sure the lights come on, and we'll take care of the rest because you can provision all of the policies from inside of Aruba Central and you can monitor all of these remote edge access points because that's another key thing that we're starting to lose uh, visibility on as the workforce becomes distributed from anywhere is the ability to troubleshoot these problems because if I'm in a corporate office I have all the corporate troubleshooting tools that I need in order to figure out why the WAN's not working. I don't have visibility into Comcast or Charter or whoever your internet provider happens to be. But if I have an endpoint there at the network that can sample and provide telemetry and analytics, then I can come back and say, hey, listen, you need to call your cable company because usually between the hours of 2 p.m. and 6 p.m., your network looks like crap. And I don't have to do anything else other than that. And that really helps from a deployment perspective because now I don't have to do truck rolls to get people to go out to the houses. Now I don't have to send a tech on site to troubleshoot a whole bunch of stuff. I just push a policy down and it takes care of the rest. And because I can use the corporate SSID in the house, I can make sure that if the kids are busy downloading the latest Battlefield update and cratering the network, it's not going to affect my executive's ability to connect to the access point. All that traffic can be tunneled wherever it needs to go while the local scavenger traffic gets dumped to the local network. So I think that this is a big plus for Aruba because I was kind of curious about where their branch offering was going to go after the Silver Peak acquisition. I think this is a good update to kind of still differentiate between the two, that we have the SD-WAN and SASE over here, but we also have the uh, edge user-focused branch deployments over here. And I'm kind of excited to see where this happens to go. Um, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about it from Aruba over the course of 2022 and uh, maybe hear some more um, tales of being, it being deployed by customers. So you'll definitely want to stay tuned to the rundown. And I'm sure that we'll be talking to them very soon on some of our field day events, whether it's networking field day or mobility field day. We had a few stories that we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at this week. And uh, the top story, quite honestly, has to be some more bad news for our friends over at NVIDIA because the U.S. Federal Trade Commission just uh, jumped into the ring to deliver a haymaker. The FTC has filed a lawsuit in federal court that is seeking to halt the proposed $40 billion merger between NVIDIA and ARM. The move tracks with some other lawsuits that have been filed by the FTC to halt some of these major acquisitions that they feel are going to stifle competition in the market. And uh, when you think about all of the global regulators that have expressed serious concerns about this proposed business deal, I think we can probably say that this is the death knell for the acquisition as we know it. There are some major concerns about intellectual property of ARM being delivered into the arms of a company that could then maybe seek to restrict it to companies that are not competitors directly to NVIDIA. Um, so Stephen, uh, we've talked about this on a number of occasions and, and I do believe that uh, I, I have to pay up on a bet, um, one dollar, that uh, this isn't gonna happen. So congratulations. I appreciate this, Tom. Uh, I feel like I uh, could see it coming. But I cannot accept your dollar. Why is Beca that? Because uh, the interesting thing that happened here is that this is the US FTC that's blocking the merger and not any of the people that I thought were going to block it. 
I never would have dreamed that the United States would block it. So uh, as we've talked about previously, the British uh, regulators have ta voiced concern over it, which makes a lot of sense considering that Arm is currently one of the most visible high-tech companies in the UK. Uh, we've also heard uh, a lot of rumblings uh, that the Chinese MOFCOM, the regulators there, might block it because they don't want to lose access to uh, ARM assets in case the United States government, for example, would stop NVIDIA, which is an American company, from doing business with certain Chinese companies, which is not an idle threat. Of course, they've been doing that quite a lot over the last few years. Uh, and, of course, I could see the Japanese regulators being upset about it because essentially they would lose uh, Jap Japan's seat at the table as well uh, because, of course, SoftBank that owns them is a Japanese company. But I never thought it would be the FTC in the United States that would block it. And I never thought that they would block it in this way. So this is a lawsuit, actually a preemptive lawsuit against the company to stop the merger. It's one of the first actions of the new head of the FTC, Lena Khan, who has been a critic of such large acquisitions. We don't want yet know exactly what's going to happen with this, but I think it's very safe to say that this is a huge, huge hurdle for NVIDIA, and it doesn't bode well for the other approvals that they have to get from all those other regulators. Because frankly, if the United States doesn't want to see this happen, um, we know that those other regulators don't want to see it happen. Uh, there's going to be no pressure on them to make it happen. Uh, so far, the reaction has actually been kind of muted. I think that people sort of expected that there would be some stumbling blocks into this acquisition, and, and I think people are kind of thinking that this is just one of those uh, hurdles that NVIDIA is going to have to cross. I don't see how they get over this hurdle, let alone the other hurdles, frankly. Uh, I think that NVIDIA will probably propose some kind of deal where they would, I don't know, um, offload some kind of business or propose some kind of perpetual licensing or something. But again, the American uh, critique of this is not that Chinese regulators uh, or that Chinese companies wouldn't have access. The American critique is all about Intel and Qualcomm and AMD and Marvell and people like that that uh, might lose access to ARM chips if uh, NVIDIA decided for business reasons to restrict them. So uh, I think that anything that NVIDIA is going to do to appease the FTC is frankly not going to do all that much to appease the UK or the Chinese regulators. And so I think that they would then have to propose more and more and more and more. So I guess it depends on how much uh, Jensen Huang wants uh, to own uh, ARM. I imagine that eventually the taste of the acquisition will be out of their mouths because it just won't, uh, it won't be enough, it won't move the needle enough. And as I said back in uh, 2020 when the deal was first proposed, uh, it's not going to happen and we'll end up with some sort of super watered down deal where SoftBank gets paid, but maybe they get paid through an IPO or some sort of consortium ownership or something that uh, allows NVIDIA to maybe have a seat at the table, but not full ownership. The thing that worries me the most about this particular development is I get that NVIDIA is not going to get what they want out of this. And quite honestly, SoftBank isn't going to get as much as they wanted out of it. But we're leaving out a very big piece, and that's ARM. So ARM is the, the child in this custody battle, if you will. And while everybody else is saying, I want to do what's best for ARM, they're not actually doing that. What they're doing is they're positioning themselves to decide who should decide what's best for ARM. Meanwhile, a huge investment that's available for ARM to be able to compete with larger companies like AMD and Intel is going to wither on the vine. 
And one of the things that we've seen a lot in the industry from these kinds of merger blockings is that the company that ultimately was going to be purchased ends up getting the shaft because nobody wants to deal with them anymore. Because, well, if NVIDIA couldn't put up their money, why should I invest in them just because somebody else wants to come get them? And so ARM is probably going to have a very interesting road for the next few months trying to figure out where they're going to be able to develop investments. And we know that there's a lot of companies out there that are willing to put some things back into ARM, but is it going to be enough to keep the company solvent enough if nobody wants to touch them anymore? Because now this causes a lot of companies to want to pull back and say, what I was going to give to them, it might be better if I do that kind of on my own, maybe like fork these projects and do the own, my own development so that I can continue to have control of it just in case SoftBank starts ship, shopping this company more harder because they're really in need of money to replace some of the other bad bets that they've made over the last few years. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Tom, and I could see something like that happening. So essentially, uh, it's kind of the analogy of, you know, if you, if you let your boss know that you're considering another offer, and then, uh, you know, from then on, your boss is always going to look at you differently mm -hmm. because they're going to think, oh, well, you know, they're on the, they're on the market. And, and similarly, if this deal doesn't go through, as you say, some of the partners could say, well, maybe this one didn't go through, but maybe there'll be another one. Um, I really think that the ultimate winner here in this whole situation is going to be uh, alternative to ARM Limited. In other words, uh, companies like Apple that are developing their own chips, uh, as well as uh, the RISC-V architecture that is out there, an open source alternative to ARM. Now, so far it hasn't proven itself much, but I'm watching it very closely because at least in the embedded space, uh, a lot of development is going in that direction instead of continuing on ARM simply because it's open source and the uh, companies feel that they have a stronger hold on it. In other words, their investment won't be wasted if they go in that direction. Well, I guess time will tell and we'll see if those bets pay off. All right, we had another great story that came out today. Um, well, as the, in the immortal words of the poet Tom Cochran, life is a highway, but Intel is ready to have somebody else drive it for you. Um, if you remember back in 2017, they acquired Mobileye, which is an autonomous driving solution company. Now, uh, that company had been public since 2014, and it had a pretty high valuation. I believe Intel bought it for $15 billion. Well, um, I think they want to unlock a little bit of value because they announced uh, this week that they will be taking the company public in mid-2022, um, mostly because the value of autonomous vehicles, hardware and software, is, is currently shooting through the roof. Um, in fact, Mobileye has stated that their projected 2021 growth numbers are 40% year-over-year from their 2020 revenue. Now, Intel will remain a majority shareholder in the company, which will allow them to kind of help choose the direction and other things that um, Mobileye will take, including that uh, you know, preferred supplier type thing where they buy all of Intel's chips so that it actually helps value for Intel. And Pat Gelsinger has been pretty vocal on this deal as well. Now, Stephen, we've talked a lot about Intel in the past, but not necessarily when it comes to autonomous vehicles. What's the play here? Yeah, this is an interesting one because, again, uh, when, you, when people talk about Intel, they always go back to x86. And they always go, you know, oh, you know, ARM is doing good things in x86. Well, guess what? Intel is not an x86 company exclusively. And uh, as you say, this uh, acquisition back in 2017 of Mobileye, uh, along with some later acquisitions that they've made, uh, we actually talked a little bit about the acquisition of Moveit. Uh, Intel also has some LiDAR technology. 
this is one of those areas of the company that's actually growing pretty rapidly. And I think that what we're seeing here is Pat Gelsinger's move to try to unlock some of that value because Intel invested in Mobileye when it was uh, sort of the darling of the autonomous driving space. This is what Tesla used in their original autopilot along with some of the other uh, popular early autonomous driving projects. But since then, Tesla has dumped, they had a famous big divorce with, uh, with Mobileye, but Intel bought the company and uh, they haven't been sleeping on it. In fact, Mobileye is the hardware platform of choice for a lot of autonomous driving um, pr platforms, projects, including uh, companies like Nissan, BMW, Volkswagen, Ford, Audi, Volvo, I mean, a lot of these cars have this technology embedded in them. And obviously the auto automotive market, as we're seeing with the current chip shortage, is a huge, huge opportunity. As you mentioned, mobilized revenues aren't uh, necessarily um, all that big right now, but they are growing rapidly. In fact, this is one of the most successful and rapidly growing parts of Intel. And having an IPO where Intel remains uh, active, but Mobileye gets an infusion of cash and the ability to uh, step on the gas, as it were, would really, really help the company uh, to become, frankly, the autonomous driving platform of choice for most of the industry that's not named Tesla. So I really feel like this is a, a strong idea I think it really maps with the kind of things that we know about Pat Gelsinger and about the directions that Intel is heading. And it also maps really nicely to the current state of the art in automotive technology. So frankly, I don't see any problems with this, except for the fact that this would be a pretty big deal. A $50 billion IPO would value the company pretty strongly. But who is gonna argue with me that autonomous, autonomous driving is not something that people should invest in? And more importantly, I think that this isn't just a big deal for Intel from the perspective of being able to unlock that shareholder value because we know that the shareholders are probably going to be sniffing around trying to get some, you know, some cash out of this deal. But it helps a lot of their other fledgling businesses. One of the ones that immediately jumps to mind based on some of the things we've talked about recently is uh, Intel's private networking, their 5G offerings. Well, if these autonomous vehicles need to send as much data as we know that they do, and an autonomous vehicle is not exactly the place you want to keep a server, you're going to be sending a lot of data over some kind of an uplink. And we've seen with Tesla that they have these uplinks where they can monitor the cars and they can do a lot of adjustments and do software uploads and things like that. Well, if Mobileye is your autonomous vehicle platform, you're going to need to be able to send that data somewhere. Why not use an Intel 5G modem? Why would you outsource that yourself when you can just buy the whole package from that company, and that will give Intel an uplift in there. And I know that Intel's had some trouble with their cellular modem business in the past. They ended up selling it to Apple, but I think maybe that was to kind of create, get rid of some of the old legacy technology and kind of focus on this new 5G future. So I'm very curious to see if the mobile eye halo, if you will, this, this idea of all these technologies that build on what's hot right now is a windfall for Intel in the future because it gives them a capability to start inserting more of these technologies that they're using as a diversification point, as you pointed out, they're not just x86 anymore, to help maybe some of that genius that we've seen from Pat Gelsinger in the past to get you away from the horse you rode in on and help you leave with a herd of horses that will be a stable business platform for you in the near future. All right. Well, that should just about do it for this episode of The Rundown. We want to thank you all very much for tuning in. Remember that we are live every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time. Uh, our videos are published on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo. You can also find 
the episode along with the show notes on our website at gestaltit.com. Um, Stephen, what are some of the things you've got coming up that people should be paying attention to? Well, Tom, the one thing that I'm really excited about is we are just about to put a ribbon on our next Cloud Field Day event. So coming up here in uh, February, we've got Cloud Field Day 13, a bunch of great cloud companies. And uh, you definitely don't want to miss that because it's going to be a packed event, including a trip to California for a bunch of the delegates and presenters in our new hybrid field day format. And I know you're doing the same thing uh, a few weeks earlier with Networking Field Day. So that's right, Stephen. Uh, this week we have an exciting new event headed your way, uh, Networking Field Day Service Provider, which is our Networking Field Day event that you know and love, but it's very focused on the people who bring you the backbone and transit networks. And then coming in January, we have our next Networking Field Day event, which right now is actually full. We have so much excitement around this event that we have a great lineup of presenters and delegates. You're definitely going to want to check out the latest at our website at techfieldday.com. Um, you can do that not only for Networking Field Day and for Cloud Field Day, but you can see all of the events that we have on our lineup for the first half of 2022. And like Stephen said, we're very excited to be able to be coming to you live on site in a hybrid uh, setup where some of our delegates will be in California, some of our delegates will be remote. Um, we can't wait to see what that interaction brings. And uh, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll keep the high quality of the Tech Field Day events that you know and love from uh, events in the past. But for the Gestalt IT Rundown, you can always catch these episodes. You can also see more of the great content that we create here at Gestalt IT, both on the website at gestaltit.com and on our YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to the Gestalt IT Rundown in a podcast. You just search for Gestalt IT Rundown in your favorite podcast application of choice, or you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, we look forward to bringing you more great news next week, and we can't wait. So thank you very much, and have a good day. 